We are, Father of all people, most to be blessed. We know the blessing of your care, and we know you because you have been so gracious to us as to speak to us through a book that we can read and we can learn from, and by your Spirit who illuminates us and gives us the desire to believe and to obey, we come to know God in Christ. So thank you, God, for this book. Every time I open its pages, I'm, I marvel at how rich and deep and profound, how profoundly it speaks to my life and to the life of this church. And so, Father, I pray now for your help. I ask you to protect us from error, fill us with your spirit and change us, and give us a deeper, richer love for the word of God, because we've been together here under its ministry, for we pray it in the name of our Savior, Jesus, amen. And I know you've gotten comfortable there, so why don't we uh, stand up again, and in honor of the word of God, let's read 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning with verse 16. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. 2 Peter 1. The Apostle Peter writing says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, and when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance, in, uh, which was made from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have a prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. I wanted to start off with that passage this morning because it kind of sets the theme for everything else that I want to talk to you about. Last week, you remember, we talked about the life and ministry of William Tyndall. And if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to get it. Uh, we talked about his life and the struggle that he had to produce the translation of the Word of God in English. And the finished product of his labor eventually became an influence in England that literally altered history and left an indelible mark on the world. King Henry VIII, with the help of a German, the German authorities, King Henry being an English king, with the help of authorities in German, in turn repaid William Tyndall by hunting him down, arresting him, holding him in prison for 18 months, and then taking him for public execution where they tied him to a stake, strangled him to death, and burned him. Before Tyndall breathed his last, however, he called out with a loud voice and said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And that's kind of where we stopped last week. And my intention this morning is not to continue with a biography, but I do want to kind of finish the story. Did the Lord answer that prayer? And the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, it was beginning to be answered even before Tyndall uttered those words. While he was in jail for those 18 months, something happened to king, the King of England. Um, Henry VIII suddenly got it in his head that maybe the best thing to do for his country would indeed be to have the Word of God translated in English. And so he conscripted a, a, a man by the name of Miles Coverdale, who was a scholar and happened to be a personal friend of William Tyndall, and asked him to complete the work that Tyndall had started. And so the first official and legal translation of the Bible in, in English then was called the Coverdale Bible, named after the scholar who 
finish the translation. But really, largely, the whole translation, with rare exceptions, was the translation of William Tyndall. After that, another friend of Tyndall's by the name of John Rogers. In 1537, he published an improved translation of the New Testament, and he called it the Matthews Bible. And he called it the Matthews Bible because he was afraid that the king might turn and change his mind again, and he would get arrested and follow the path of Tyndall to the stake. And after that came the Great Bible, also known as the Chained Bible. And the reason that it was called the Chained Bible is because they had to chain it to the wall at the back of the church so nobody would steal it. Crowds of people would come and and they wanted to just stand there and see it. I mean, hardly any of them could even read. But one who could read would stand at the chained Bible, the great Bible, as it was called, and read it. And the people would just fill the back of the church. Even outside, they'd stand on the steps hoping to hear the word of God read in English. It was the first Bible to be read in churches. King Henry VIII sent orders to every church in England that they should have one, and people flocked eagerly to the churches. In fact, they were so eager just to hear the reading of the scripture that a new law had to be passed, which stated, essentially, that when you go to church and listen to the reading of the word of God, but when the worship starts, no more reading scripture Go in and listen to the preacher, and then you can go back out and hear more reading of the Bible, but no reading of the Bible while the preacher is preaching. And um, I don't know that that applies to you, but at least not out loud, if you would just do me that favor. Um, this was the chain Bible. This was the Bible that first became, uh, well, it was the second one that became accepted in England. In fact, the Bible's, uh, be, this particular Bible became so famous that um, it was really a magnet for drawing people to church. They wanted to be there just to hear, not so much the preaching, which in churches that were doing this were also preaching in English, but they just wanted to hear God speak. But there was still another Bible that was destined to become the most popular of the century. It was translated when Queen Mary was Queen of England. She was also known as Bloody Mary who was renowned for uh, persecuting the church and killing pastors. Under the protection of John Calvin and the civil authorities at Geneva, Switzerland, this Bible became the first Bible to contain chapter and verse numbers, and every page had explanatory notes on it so that everyone could understand what the biblical authors intended to say. In other words... The Geneva Bible was the first study Bible. And if you look at your Bible and you see chapter number, numbers and verse numbers, that's the result of John Calvin and John Knox and some other men who got together and first translated it from uh, Greek to um, French for the French-speaking people and then into English. And it was called the Geneva Bible. Um, just like the great Bible was the Bible for the church, so the Geneva Bible became the Bible of the home. And you can see that over here. I mean, these, these pages out of uh, large Bibles, those two, the one closest to me is a page from the King James Version. But the one in the middle, you can see the difference. You would want that on a podium somewhere where, where groups of people could stand around and flip through and read it. Um, it's, it's hard for us to read now just because of the English and the typeface. But the one next to it is the Geneva Bible. It's the first page out of the book of Hebrews. And you can see it's, it's entirely different. It's small. It's something that you could have in your home. It's something that a father could read to his children. And it had all the notes in it that uh, John Knox and John Calvin and others contributed to to help people understand what the Word of God meant by what it said. And yet the story goes on. Uh, this Bible became so popular, it was the one that was used by Shakespeare as he quoted the Bible in his later plays. It was the Bible, Bible that was used by the settlers in Jamestown when they first came to America. It was the Bible brought by um, the pilgrims on the Mayflower, not the King James, but the Geneva Bible. And nevertheless, it was, it was not a popular Bible with the English church, nor with the king. The new king, King James, when he ascended to the throne, 
He was infuriated by some of the notes, especially in Deuteronomy, where um, Knox and Calvin and the other contributors to the notes gave instructions on when it would be appropriate to rebel against your king. And King, king uh, James didn't like that. Go figure. He didn't want anybody, and he certainly didn't want the church thinking that it would ever be appropriate to rebel against their king. And so he made it illegal to own a Geneva Bible. And amazingly, however, after the years uh, of burning these Bibles and um, arresting people who own these Bibles, King James finally decided that the best thing to do would be to come up with a, a new translation. And so there came a translation named after him, the King James Bible, which was largely the Tyndall Bible. In fact, the King James Bible is essentially the Tyndall Bible. 80 to 90% of the translation work of Tyndall shows up in the King James Bible. Uh, the verbiage that he uses, very specialized terminology that Tyndall used that we don't have time to talk about. 80 to 90% of the King James Bible is William Tyndall. It's almost the Geneva Bible, except they extracted all of the notes, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Because none of the notes were inspired, right? Remember in seminary, when I was taking a hermeneutics course, hermeneutics is simply the science of studying the Bible. How do you study the Bible to understand it rightly? It's the science of hermeneutics. And um, the requirement for the course is you had to have a brand new copy of the Bible and no study notes. Why? Because they didn't want us to be dependent on any man's understanding of the text, at least not exclusively. Now, you can only take that so far, and I'll talk about that later, but we do need to value the history of the church and make sure that our interpretations, surely in 2,000 years, somebody else has come to the same conclusion. If I come to a conclusion that I can't substantiate any time in human history, I really need to question whether I've got it right. Nevertheless, the King James Bible was a great Bible, and it didn't have the notes and in some sense, that's a good thing. But there was already a Bible that had the notes, and that was a good thing. And then, when we, um, when we consider how things move forward here, we need to realize, when we talk about William Tyndall and these other guys, th these were not the first. It, the Reformation didn't start necessarily with William Tyndall. Uh, the translation of the Bible into the language of the people didn't start with William Tyndall. I mean, he was the first one to produce a coherent English Bible in the language of the people, but there were men before him. Back in the 1100s, 350 years before Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses, a group known as the Waldensians began to teach that the Bible alone is the authority for the church. They defied papal authority. That is, they defied the authority of the pope and committed themselves to preaching the gospel and even translating the word of God into the common language of the people. And they were severely persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church to a point that they themselves found, them, found themselves as, as a group hiding in caves and places in the Alps, in the mountains. And then in the 1300s, still two centuries before Luther, and even uh, an, Eng an English scholar named uh, John Wycliffe began to make his mark on the world. He was nicknamed the Morning Star of the Reformation. And while we look to Martin Luther as kind of the guy who launched the Reformation, he didn't intend to, but he apparently did. But we would look back to John Cliff and say, John, uh, John Wycliffe, and say, he made a huge impact that kind of started laying the groundwork for what would happen in Martin Luther's day because of his uncommon commitment to the plain teaching of Scripture. He was actually the first to translate the Bible completely in English, but it was Middle English, and the printing press hadn't been, written, uh, had, hadn't been invented yet. And because it was Middle English, it was really hard for the common people to understand. And so it didn't make that much of an impact. A generation later, in the early 1400s, a, bo a bohemian preacher named John Huss thundered onto the scene. And like with Wycliffe, Huss opposed the papacy and taught that Christ alone was the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, then his word is the only authority in the church. 
I mean, if his word is the only authority in the church, then the gospel must be defined by Scripture alone. And then in 1415, after being promised safe passage to the Council of Constance, John Huss was arrested illegally, falsely accused, put on trial, condemned as a heretic, and burned at the, at the stake. And Tyndall would follow in his footsteps. Now we need to ask at this point, why in the world were these men willing to lay their lives down, willing to give themselves over to the flames of execution for the sake of a book? A book. One book. All of these men died for one book. Why? Why were they willing to do that? Here's the answer. They were willing to give themselves over to the flames because they believed with every fiber of their being that that book was actually the very words of God to men. And because it was the word of God to men, therefore it is the only divine authority over the lives of God's people and the lives of all men. And it probably goes to, without saying that this position was in direct opposition to the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, the Catholic bishops believed in the Bible, but they contended that in addition to the Bible, the other authoritative word came from tradition, the tradition of the magisterium. Now, I'm kind of broad brushing. There's a little bit more complex to this. But we need to understand that um, the reformers took a one-book approach and said, the word of God is the Bible. And the Catholic Church began taking a two-book approach. Yes, it is the Bible, but it is also the teaching of the magisterium, who were the scholars who came up with the traditions based on a lot of allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And so that anything in the Bible could mean almost anything. Every tent peg in the tabernacle meant something spiritual. Every curtain, I mean, everything. Balaam's donkey, I mean, there was, there was you would just never be able to figure out what they were going to come up with next because it was all allegorical. And the reformers stood against that and they said, we are a one-book people. God has given us the scriptures. It is our only authority. In 1415, after um, John Huss was killed, God's story marched on in the lives of his people. Even though the Roman Catholic Church was trying to tear down what these men were building, it could not be stopped. And this was the very ground of the Reformation upon which the rest of the Reformation would be built. It is the formal principle of the Reformation that the Word of God is the sole authority pertaining to life and godliness for God's people. Now, over the next four Sundays, Brent and I want to offer you four messages on the topic of Scripture because this is so important to us. And we want to talk about the clarity of Scripture and the necessity of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture but with the remainder of my time this morning, I just want to talk to you about the authority of Scripture. Because this is critical to God's people. I believe as we move closer to June, when Living Hope Bible Church launches, and we go through a time of transition as a church here, it's imperative for us to go back and consider the basics of who we are and why we do what we do. We are not free to invent church. We're not free to invent anything and everything that we have an impulse to do. We are ruled by one thing, and that is the Word of God. There are reasons we call ourselves a Bible church. I, I used to answer the phone jokingly sometimes just by saying, uh, Hi, you've called Calvary Bible Church, where Bible's not just the center of our name, it's the center of our preaching. That's true. It's center of everything in our church. And I, and I understand you can go to Bible churches. and In reality, the term Bible church doesn't mean anything. You look up Bible church and you go visit that church, you might end up in a charismatic church. You might end up in a, in a more liturgical church. You might end up in any, with any kind of thing. 
but I believe Bible Church is, is a good name. And before that term was ever coined, there were centuries of rich history that eventually led to us becoming what we are today. And we dare not lose that history. And we dare not lose the essential teaching that will keep us grounded in the turbulent years that, that lie ahead. You say, well, what are those turbulent years? I don't know. I've just been doing this job long enough to know that we're going to have some rough times ahead. And you know what? Those are the times when you have to be prepared because if you're not, you're just going to invent things. And that's how evangelicalism begins to slide. And so this morning, let's consider the very bedrock of the church, namely the authority of Scripture. The authority of Scripture. Now, if we're going to think about the authority of Scripture, we're going to need help to understand this. And so if you're taking notes, number one, let's talk about the apostles' view of the Scriptures. The apostles' view of the Scriptures. And again, we're just going to hit a few texts here. There are many and this is a bit of a broad brush, but let's just try to get a feel from this from the apostles' perspective. The apostles had a very high view of Scripture. As you might expect, our thinking on this needs to begin with the Apostle Paul's second letter to Timothy. And so if you could just take a minute to flip backwards here, if you're in 1 Peter, let's go back to 2 Timothy. Because in 2 Timothy, we find these words in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. So follow along with me as I read. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. And if you're in Awana, you no doubt have already memorized this. And that's great. So let's listen. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the what? Say it, class. The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now the important statement here that I want us to see is verse 16. All scripture is what? It's inspired. It's inspired by God. The word inspired literally means to breathe out. God breathed out his word. And Paul says it's true of every scripture. And Paul is telling us here that the words of scripture are the very words of God. Charles Hodges, a former theologian, writes this. On this subject... The common doctrine of the church is, and ever has been, that inspiration was an influence of the Holy Spirit on the minds of certain select men, which rendered them the organs of God for the infallible communication of his mind and will. They were in such a sense the organs of God that what they said, God said. The organs of God. He's thinking of body parts here. He's thinking of lungs. You know, what, what does it require for there to be speech? Lungs, a mouth, a tongue. These organs, as if they were the organs of God, human organs of God, speaking forth God's word brought to them by the Holy Spirit. It's like this, you know. The best illustration I know of how this works is, I mean, uh, every week we have Marsha up here playing the piano. She sits down at an instrument and she plays it. And what plays is, is usually very, very beautiful. And it's what the, the composer of that song wanted it to be, or it's what she wants it to be. But she is playing that instrument. And then she gets up and leaves, and the instrument is by itself. And then she comes back, and she plays the instrument. This is what inspiration is like. From time to time, God would take one of his choice servants and sit down with them, as it were, and play them like a piano, so that what they said, what came out of their mouth, was the very words of God. In other words, Scripture is the final authority in the believer's life, because the words of Scripture are, in fact, the very words of God. Inspiration, by the way, was necessary for another reason, and that is, 
that all men are fallible. All of us are fallible. And that's true not only of us, but of the prophets and the apostles and, and the other men that God used to bring about his written word. None of us are perfect. None of them were perfect. All of them were sinners. However, as Peter explains in 2 Peter 1.21, which we read a few minutes ago, when God used them to communicate his revelation, he spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work. It's not his only work, but this was a magnificent work of the Spirit and arguably the most significant one for us from a human perspective, and here's why. Do you realize the gospel is the most important doctrine, right? We've got to have the gospel. We've got to know Jesus Christ. We don't know Jesus Christ. We don't know the Father. We have no forgiveness of sins. We've got to know Jesus Christ, but here's the thing. There's only one way to know Jesus Christ, and that's through his word. If you go looking for a systematic theology, a good one, if you pull it off the shelf and flip through the table of contents, most of them, most of them, not all, but most of them are going to start in their systematic approach to understanding theology. They're not going to start with the doctrine of God, like you might expect. They're going to start with the doctrine of Scripture. Why? Because we don't know anything about God without the Scriptures. The only things we can discern about God are what we see in nature, in general revelation. And that is enough so that we don't have an excuse, Romans 1 says. But if we want to know the propositional truth relative to the gospel that saves men, we've got to have the scriptures. We've got to have the word of God. And this is what makes the word of God unique in its authority. No other purported source of revelation can legitimately claim inspiration. The early church fathers, not inspired. The creeds, not inspired. Valuable, helpful, but not inspired. The pope, not inspired. The magisterium, not inspired. Psychiatrists and psychologists, believe it or not, not inspired. Scientists, not inspired. But the apostles and the prophets, were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that what they wrote and said were the very words of God. And Peter explains again in 2 Peter 1.3, in his word, God has granted to us everything. How many things? Everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Dr. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says this, the authority of Scripture means that all the words of Scripture are God's word in such a way that to believe or, um, excuse, excuse me, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. That's the authority of Scripture. And the apostles believed that the scripture was the ultimate and final authority because they were the very words of God. If they were spoke from God, they're not suggestions. This is eternal truth. And so we've seen here in brief the apostles' view of scripture. Now, let's take the next step. Let's look at, let's look at the Savior's view of scripture. Now, this is, this is kind of cool when you start thinking of what Jesus could have done and, and what he actually did when he was dealing with his adversaries. And frankly, the religious tenor of his day was not unlike the religious atmosphere of our day. And there was a lot of false teaching going around, and there was some true teaching going around as well. But basically, there were two camps, and they had to work together. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And together, they made up the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling class um, over or the religious ruling body over the nation of Israel. And there were differences between the two. Um, the Sadducees accepted as the word of God only the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah. And they essentially said, if it's not in the Torah, then we don't believe it. And so there are all kinds of things that they didn't believe because they weren't mentioned in the Torah, like resurrection, like angels, like the afterlife. I mean, there are a lot of things. They, they, 
they almost didn't believe in anything spiritual. They hardly believed in God. Well, because God is mentioned in the first five books, they believed in him. But none of the other stuff. The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed that all of the Old Testament was true, from Genesis to our favorite Italian prophet at the end, Malachi. And because of that, everything that was taught in the Old Testament, they believed. So they believed in resurrection. They believed in angels. They believed in the afterlife. And they believed a lot of other things that the Pharisees, that the Sadducees didn't believe. And so there were these two groups who were ruling religiously, and they were very careful, at least they, they thought they were, very careful about what they would do with Scripture. In fact, they were so careful that they added to Scripture their traditions to keep people from violating the actual commandments that are in Scripture. And so they, they did a big no-no. They added to the Word of God, thinking they were helping, and they weren't. And now, now with all of this, with all of their squabbling over doctrinal positions relative to um, resurrection, which is really interesting when you read the book of Acts, when you get toward the end, my family and I finished reading the book of Acts this week. And it's interesting when Paul is making his defense, when they bring him before the religious leaders, they're Pharisees and Sadducees, and Paul was very strategic. He wanted to, um, he wanted to get the focus off of himself, and so he said to them, and to the Roman rulers who were there, that the reason he was on trial was because of the hope of Israel, which is resurrection. And the Pharisees says, yes. And the Sadducees said, no. And a riot broke out. And they had to rescue Paul and take him away, which is exactly what he wanted. But they were, you know, you think about the infighting, the doctrinal squabbles. And you would think that Jesus stepping into that picture, I mean, if he were... He were cut from the same cloth as religious leaders in our day. You would think he would step in and tell these two groups, just chill. I mean, can't we all just get along? Let's put aside our differences and focus on ministering to the poor and loving people and, and taking care of things. Let's emphasize human flourishing and, and not be so tied up in these persnickety little you know, problems with this doctrine, doctrine or that doctrine. And that's not at all what he did. Jesus repeatedly told the Pharisees that their problem was that their view of Scripture was too low. He says things like this. And by the way, Jesus, Jesus in, in compared to the Pharisees, um, his theology was a lot simpler than the Pharisees but oh, so much more robust because it was perfect. But Jesus would say things to them like this, John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me. And by the way, that was great for the Sadducees. You say you know Moses inside and out. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are your books. But listen, if you really know what those books meant, you would accept me, you would love me. Mark 7, 8, and 9, Jesus says to them, neglecting the commandments of God, that's the scriptures, you hold to the tradition of men. And Mark says he was also saying to them, you are experts in, in setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. And every time there's a dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees or the Sadducees, he responds this way by appealing to the, the absolute authority of scripture. I mean, and there's more, Matthew 5, 17 through 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is all accomplished. That's pretty definitive. I haven't come to abolish the law. I have come to uphold the law. Luke 16, 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke or letter of the law to fail. Mark 12, 10. He, he repeatedly said this phrase in a number of different ways. And they were always infuriating to the Pharisees because they were the experts in the scriptures. And so he would look at them some days and he would say, have you not even read the scriptures? I mean, haven't you even gone to Sunday school? Luke 21, 33. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then John 10, 35, and I wish, we, I wish I had time to do a whole sermon just on this one. Only four words. Scripture cannot be broken. Think about this, beloved. I mean, Jesus, who was Jesus? He was the Son of God. He was the one to whom the Lord, the Father, had given all authority over heaven and earth, right? I mean, ha when he was refuting the Pharisees, he could have done it any way he pleased. Could have come up with his own stuff. Could have appealed to the philosophy of uh, the world. He could have uh, appealed to tradition. He could have appealed to precedent. He was God. Talk about new revelation. I mean, he had direct communication with the Father, and yet he never pulled rank on these guys. At least not in these arguments. He never did. He always went back to what they already had, namely the written word of God. He chose to refute and correct them using the authority of Scripture. And he did the same thing. You remember when Satan came and tempted him? Three times Satan tempted him out there in the wilderness, right? Three different temptations. And on each one, what did Jesus say? How did he respond? It is what? Written. It is written. It is written. Isn't that interesting? That the Son of God would appeal to Scripture as the governing authority, even over his own life? Not only that, but the goal for you and me as Jesus sees it, is that we would grow to become all that God wants us to be. And we would do it by the ministry of the word. And, and we know from Paul that the whole point of that is that we would become like Christ. And how would that happen? Well, in, first, in John uh, chapter 17, Jesus praying to the Father about you and me and about his disciples. And he said to the Father, Father, sanctify them in your truth, your Word is truth. Now that's a monumental statement. And let me explain why. I want you to notice here that when he says your word is truth, he's not using an adjective. He's not saying your word is true. Because that would have put God's word in, in the same basket with all kinds of other things that claim to be true. No, no, no. He used the term as a noun. Your word is truth. It is the truth. That is to say, God's word, the Bible, is never merely true. It is truth itself. Thus, we are to think of the Bible as the ultimate standard of truth, the reference point by which every other claim to truthfulness must be measured. Truth is what God says and we have what God says in the Bible. So we've considered the Apostles' view of Scripture and, and the Savior's view of Scripture. Now, let's think for a few minutes a little bit about history once again. Number three, the church's view of Scripture. And I mean, not Calvary Bible Church. We'll get to that in a minute. That'll be the fourth point. But, but I mean, the church from its beginning, and especially around that area of transition, from the false teachings that got into the church to the Reformation, their attempt to reform the existing church, which ended up in the schism between Catholics and Protestants. As the Reformation began to take shape, one of the rallying cries of the Reformers was the Latin slogan, Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. When the Puritans picked up the baton from the Reformers, they were careful with this term. They were careful not only to believe it and hold it, but to, to explain it. And so in the Westminster Confession of Faith, here's what we read. Try to follow along with this. It's not terribly complicated, but thought-provoking. Westminster said this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or the traditions of men. 
pretty thorough explanation. In other words, the word of God must be seen as the final authority. We might call it the final court of arbitration between truth and error for all things pertaining to life and godliness. The authority over the believer's life is the word of God, sola scriptura. And John MacArthur, who is probably best known for his clarity on these things, writes this, and I think this is worth hearing. Sola scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in the scriptures. It is not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in scripture. The most ardent defender of sola scriptura will concede, for example, that scripture has little or nothing to say about DNA structures or microbiology or the rules of Chinese grammar or rocket science. This or that scientific truth, for example, may or may not be actually true, whether or not it can be supported by the Bible. But scripture is a more sure word, as Peter said, standing above all other truth in its authority and certainty. It is a more sure word, according to the Apostle Peter, than the data that we gather from first-hand knowledge through our senses. Therefore, Scripture is the highest and supreme authority on any manner on which it speaks. Now, I know it's long, but let me point out something. He says that it is more sure, according to the Apostle Peter, than the data we gather firsthand through our senses. Now, remember that Second Peter passage that I pointed you to at the beginning? Turn back there for just a minute. Let me show you what Peter was saying. And we talk about spiritual experiences, right? You've had a spiritual experience. I've had one. You know, everybody's got a spiritual experience. Beloved, your spiritual experience may have been a real experience, and, and I'm not denying that. However, I would say there's something more important, and this is exactly what Peter is saying. Watch this. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord, 2 Peter 3, 16. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, ask yourself the question, when was Peter an eyewitness of Jesus' majesty? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made, to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utter utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John were with Jesus. He went up the mountain to pray. He starts praying. And suddenly the cloud appears and the light and it was as if the veil of, of Jesus' flesh was, was torn back so that they could see his glory. He shone like lightning. He blinded them. Now, was that a real exp spiritual experience? <laughs> you bet it was. It was not only a true spiritual experience, but it was recorded for us in God's word on multiple occasions. It was real. And yet, notice the next verse, verse 9. So we have a prophetic word, a prophetic word made more sure to you, which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What's he saying? Spiritual experience, that's great. But there's something that has far more authority than any spiritual experience, and that is the Word of God, the Scriptures. And beloved, if that was true for the Apostle Peter, who was one of the authors of Scripture, it's true for you and me. Beloved, this is so important for us who live in a postmodern pluralistic society where it's commonly believed that there is no such thing is absolute truth. Your truth may be contradictory to my truth, but your truth is just as valid as my truth. And that's the culture we live in. And the fact is, 
God has given us the truth. He has given us a means of measuring our thoughts, our ideas, our philosophies, our impulses to make sure they are true, to make sure they are consistent with true truth, as Schaefer used to say. Now, how do we determine what is right and wrong? Are we just left to ourselves? How do we discern the will of God for our lives? How do we know? How should we respond when we're mistreated? I mean, these are important questions, right? What should we think about marriage? What should we think about sexuality? What should we think about gender? What should we believe about life after death and how to be reconciled to God and 10,000 other issues? And all of them are spoken to in the Word of God. We don't look to psychology to answer these questions. We don't look to science. And I'm not saying they can't be helpful. They can be helpful. But they are not the final word. They are not the final court of arbitration. We don't look to politics. We don't look to pop culture to tell us how to live. There's only one final authority in in the life of a believer, and it is the word of God as given to us in Scripture. And beloved, this is the fundamental mark that should distinguish your life as a child of God from the rest of the world. That is, what should distinguish your life is this, that your life is ruled by the authority of God's word. And you know what? I've been, I've been living under the authority of God's word for most of my life. And I can tell you, the more I understand God's word, the more I obey what God says, the better life gets. I'm not, I'm not hardly any richer, and I'm not as healthy as I once was. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the joy of life, the contentment, the purpose, the satisfaction, my relationship with God. It's just better. It's just better. And the whole discussion, uh, by the way, isn't this what what, um, Brent read earlier from Psalm 19? Don't you love that text? Just to throw in a positive note here about living under the authority of the word of God. Here's, Here's what the psalmist said. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You need wisdom? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Are you depressed? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Are you confused? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know what he's saying? Better than ice cream. (laughs) Some of you need to hear that, right? I did on the holidays. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Great reward. This whole discussion reminds me of what was happening back in Israel when the prophet Isaiah was God's representative before the people. And they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. And they wanted to discern, you know, um, how they should proceed. And they were looking for answers. And they were looking for help in all kinds of things to determine God's will. They They were even consulting spiritists and mediums. You know, palm readers and tea leaf readers. And, and more specifically, they, they would speak with people who said that they could talk with the dead, necromancers, so that they could know what was coming in the future. And this was a terrible offense to God. And so God sent the prophet Isaiah who said these words. Um, this is God speaking through the prophet. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? 
Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. In other words, they have no light, no truth. To the word, to the law and the testimony. This is similar to what happened in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember in chapter 16, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The rich man died, the poor man died, Lazarus died, and they went to, as Jesus tells the story, they went to different places. One went to um, Hades, um, or hell, in that, in that instance. And, um, and the other one went to paradise, or in that text it's called Abraham's bosom. And somehow, at least in the story, they were able to communicate. And, and the man who was in hell was saying, Father Abraham, can you just give me a drop of water to quench my thirst in these flames? And Abraham said, no, I'm sorry, there's a gulf between us that can't be bridged. And he said, okay, then, can you send someone back from the dead to go tell my brothers, to warn them of this place so that they won't come? And Abraham said, no, no, they won't listen. And the man says, yes, they will. If a man rises from the dead, they will listen. To which Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know what that means? They have the word of God already. They have everything they need. They either accept the word or they reject it, but that's all God is offering. And by the way, after that, when Jesus actually raised a man by the name of Lazarus from the dead, what was the result? It was mixed. Some people believed, and some people wanted to kill him for it. The Word of God is the authority. You see, the Word of God has always been the believer's authority because God has spoken, and we have a sure and perfect Word to serve as the anchor and compass for our lives. And as Christians, we believe that the true church has always taught this, namely that the Bible is actually the authoritative Word of God. We believe in sola scriptura, we believe in Scripture alone as the sole and final authority regarding everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so here at Calvary Bible Church, I mean, we, we read the Bible. We teach the Bible. We preach the Bible. We counsel with the Bible. We encourage. We exhort. We correct with the Bible. We meditate on the Bible. We, we sing the truth and the, and the words of the Bible. But it's not just the church's historical view of the Bible that, that is precious to us. It's our own view of the Bible. It's our understanding when you pull all these things together. And looked at the apostles' view and Jesus' view and the church's view. Think about Calvary's view. As we move into the challenges of the coming year, as we develop our fallible, dependent plan for future years, Where are we going to stand? And you should know that the elders of Calvary Bible Church and the future elders of Living Hope Bible Church are committed to the absolute authority of Scripture. And those of you who have been around here for a while know that it's rare for me to preach a topical message like this. There's a reason for that. Topical messages are okay as long as they're expository, as long as they're explaining the truth of Scripture which I hope I am this morning. But normally we're taking a book and we're going verse by verse, section by section. Why? Because it's best to do it that way. And here's why. If I do it the other way, if I just come up with a topic and I go to the scriptures and try to find answers for that topic, here's what's happening. I'm choosing what you need to hear. And I'm skipping things that I might think are too hard or things that I don't like. But if I start with verse 1 of chapter 1 of a book and just work through it, all you're getting is what God said, and you're getting it all. We like to say that the preacher's job is to give the whole counsel of God, whatever it is, whether I like it or not, whether I fully understand it or not. It's a protection for the church. 
As we come week after week, yes, to be with one another, yes, to enjoy singing the, the songs together and enjoying fellowship uh, with the Father and through worship, but primarily we come to hear the word of God. And as the elders of this church, we understand, frankly, that we have no authority apart from the word of God. And I know some of you come from church denominations or maybe just individual churches where they were, they were just on your life. They, they would tell you who you can marry, when you can marry, what you could do, you know, what to do on Sunday, what to do on Monday, what, you know, just a lot of, and, and, and when you, you would question it, they, they'll say, well, we're, we're your spiritual authority. And you know what? That's true. That's a true statement. God has put a spiritual authority in your life in the church. But, but here's the thing. The elders of Calvary Bible Church and of Living Hope Bible Church, we understand something about authority that the human authorities in this church don't have any authority in themselves. The only authority that we have is here in this book. Our authority is calling you to submit to God's authority for your good, for your joy, for the glory of God. That's the authority. It's not me. It's always God. And that should be a great comfort to you because my job is to serve you as one who stands under this book, not over it. And parents, let me, just, let me just give you application, speaking to myself as well, though my children are getting older. When you're disciplining your kids, you need to communicate to them regularly, regularly. The reason that I'm disciplining you right now is because you're under authority and I am under authority. We are both called to obey God. You are called to obey God by obeying your mom and dad. And your mom and dad are called to obey God by disciplining you when you don't obey as an act of obedience on our part. Your boss is my boss. We just have different responsibilities. Get it? I remember when Josh, my oldest son, discovered, because we taught them early on, before John 3.16, parents always teach Ephesians 6.1, you know, children obey your parents in the Lord, right? We'll get to John 3.16, they'll know that. I remember when my son Josh discovered um, Ephesians 6.4. <laughs> Fathers, do not exasperate your children. And I had already taught him, your dad is under authority. I am not the ultimate authority. And when he saw that, he went, wow, you really are under authority. Yes, I am. I don't have the freedom to do anything I please in disciplining my children or leading my wife. I am under authority. I do what God says, and if I fail to do it, or if I do the opposite of it, then something needs to happen. Somebody needs to call me out. And by the way, since we're on the issue of parenting, and I have a couple minutes left, can I just say, not only teach your children that you're under authority and they're under authority, but give them the opportunity to make an appeal. You want the opportunity to appeal to the authority over you when you think what is happening is unjust, don't you? And there are some occasions, Dad, when you tell your child to do something and his mother just told him to do something else, and now there's confusion in his heart. What do I do? If I obey my dad, I'm disobeying my mom. If I obey my mom, I'm disobeying my dad. Your child needs to be taught to make a respectful appeal. And my kids do this all the time. I'll say, son, get out there and put the trash out. What? Can I make an appeal? Oh, please. What is it? Well, mom told me to, you know, finish the dishwasher. Okay. Finish the dishwasher. What's happening here? He's got information that I don't have. And I'm communicating to him, I too am a man under authority. I have to obey God's word. I'm not allowed to just treat you however I want and exasperate you. It's exasperating to a child to not be able to make a respectful appeal. And you know what? There are some times when my kids will say, can I make an, can I make an appeal? And I'll say, no. <laughs> Get out there and put out the trash. The truck is coming down the street. You know, maybe if the house was on failure or something, I don't know. But give them the right to do that. You want it. And the Word of God makes allowance for it. Your job 
as you, even as you listen to me, as you listen to me this morning say everything that I say, you need to understand that everything that I have said today, including that little tidbit about what to do as parents, you need to test that against the word of God. Because I am not the final arbiter of truth here. The word of God authority. I'm here to present it to you best I can, the best I know, with a lot of study during the week. But you know what? I need sometimes for brothers in Christ to come to me and say, hey, heard what you said. I get it. Have you considered this? Mm. That's how I grow. That's how I learn. That's how I become better doing what God has called me to do. This is a fallible pastor. You're a fallible parent. And all of us are under the authority of Scripture. And by the way, the whole thing about examining what I'm teaching, that's called discernment. And it is, I think, the number one need of the American church in our day. And we're just so easily strung along by every teaching, every doctrine, everything that appeals to the, to the flesh and to the senses, so easily turned, Paul would say in, in Ephesians 4, easily tossed by every wind and wave of doctrine. We desperately need a... a uh, um, discernment. But listen, discernment doesn't come out of a vacuum. Discernment, the whole process of discernment is simple. It's simple to understand, hard to do. It's easy to understand. It, it's, it's simply this. Take what you hear, compare it with the truth. Take what you hear, compare it with the truth. That's discernment. So when you come to me for counsel, expect that I'm going to take you to the, to the book for answers. When you ladies come to one of our women counselors, expect they're going to take you to the book. And if they don't take you to the word of God as their authority for telling you what you should do and how you should handle this particular problem or how you should repent, then go find another counselor. Because the word of God is our authority. Are you committed to the authority of scripture? Let me ask you some basic questions as we close here. You know, I've got to ask myself, why do I relate to, the, to my wife the way I do? Why do I relate to her? It's because that's the way my parents related to each other. My dad related to my mom, which maybe wasn't good. Am I governed by my own impulses and pop psychology, Dr. Phil, or by the authoritative word of God? Why do I relate to my children and lead my family the way I do? Is it simply because the people who are in my life do it that way, so I should do it? Or do I look at the word of God and say, yes, that's consistent with the Bible and I need to be more like that? Or no, 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 we are not going there because it's contrary to Scripture. Why do I relate to my in-laws the way that I do? Okay, let's skip that one. Why do I spend... <laughs> that's not true. I love my mother-in-law. But why do, why do I relate to her the way that I do? You know... God's word has some things to say about that, explicitly and by implication. Why do I spend and save and invest money the way that I do? Am I doing it because I want to honor God by using my money the way he wants me to use it as revealed in his word? Or, or am I just a lover of money? What governs how I use my time and the time that I spend with my family? Do I work too much? Okay, maybe we do need to skip that one. What rules my decisions when it's time to pay taxes? Is it a love of money or faith in God? By what standard do you discern between truth and error? Between true teaching and false teaching? Beloved, the authority of Scripture is a really big issue for the church. In fact, submitting to the Word of God is what distinguishes Christians from the rest of the world. This should be the distinguishing mark of your life. Yes, Christ-likeness. But what is Christ-likeness? It is obedience to the authority of God's word. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes this. What is a Christian? True Christians are people who acknowledge and live under the word of God. They submit without reserve to the word of God written in the book of truth, believing the teaching and trusting the promises and following the commands 
Their eyes are upon the God of the Bible as their father and the Christ of the Bible as their savior. And consider this. The only way you can know God and his son and his spirit is through the word of God. It's through the word of God. Do you now understand why Tyndall was willing to die if that's what it would cost to to put the word of God in the hands of the people? It's why he was willing to be burned at the stake. He knew that was going to happen if he got caught. He knew that without the printed word of God, without the written word of God in the language of the people, they were lost. But with it, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And that's why John Wesley once cried out, Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Here I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of the book. And I would say, let ours be a family, a family of the book and a church of the book. Listen, we don't worship the Bible, but we love it because it reveals to us God and it teaches us how to live in a way that is consistent with the reality, namely God himself. And so, beloved, I want you to think about this and ponder this this week. The singular characteristic that should distinguish your life from the world around you is that your life is governed by the word of God. Is it? In increasing measure, is it? Let's pray. Father, I know that I need your help with this because I, I'm still a sinner. But, oh, Father, I love your word. And you are growing me and changing me and enabling me to enjoy the delight of this life lived before you more than ever before. I pray, Father, that that would be true for the rest of the years of my life. And I pray for these people who are listening here today. And Father, would you put within them a holy passion not to follow the example of those who have gone before unless the example has been an example of submission to your word for their joy and their comfort and their prosperity in the spirit. Oh, Father, be glorified in us as we live according to your word. Father, we praise you for it. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.